No words describe the sacred occasion when a new father holds a baby daughter in his arms for the first time. This year, three of our sons have become new fathers of baby girls. As I watched our rugged, strong, rugby-playing son, John, hold his first baby daughter in his arms, he looked at her with a reverent tenderness, and then he looked at me with an expression that seemed to say, How do I raise a girl? (laughs) This morning, I would like to speak to our sons and to all fathers. How can a father raise a happy, well-adjusted daughter in today's increasingly toxic world? The answer has been taught by the Lord's prophets. It's a simple answer, and it's true. The most important thing a father can do for his daughter is to love her mother. By the way you love her mother, you will teach your daughter about tenderness, loyalty, respect, compassion, and devotion. She will learn from your example what to expect from young men and what qualities to seek in a future spouse. You can show your daughter by the way you love and honor your wife that she should never settle for less. Your example will teach your daughter to value womanhood. You are showing her that she is a daughter of our Heavenly Father who loves her. Love her mother so much that your marriage is celestial. A temple marriage for time and all eternity is worthy of your greatest efforts and highest priority. It was only after Nephi had completed the temple in the wilderness that he stated, And we lived after the manner of happiness. The manner of happiness is found in the temple. It is covenant-keeping. Don't let any influence come into your life or your home that would cause you to compromise your covenants or your commitment to your wife and family. In the young women, we are helping your daughter understand her identity as a daughter of God and the importance of remaining virtuous and worthy to receive the blessings of the temple and of a temple marriage. We are teaching your daughter the importance of making and keeping sacred covenants. We are teaching her to commit now to live so that she can always be worthy to enter the temple and not to allow anything to delay, distract, or disqualify her from that goal. Your example as her father speaks louder than our important words. Young women worry about their fathers. Many express their greatest desire is to be united eternally as a family. They want you to be there when they go to the temple or get married in the temple. Stay close to your daughter and help her prepare and remain worthy for the temple. When she turns 12, take her with you to the temple often to perform baptisms for your ancestors and others. She will cherish these memories forever. Today's popular culture tries to erode and demean your eternal role as patriarch and father and minimize your most important responsibilities. These have been given to you by divine design, and as fathers, you are to preside over your families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for your families. Fathers, you are the guardians of your homes, your wives, and your children. Today, it's not an easy thing to protect one's family against intrusions of evil into their minds and spirits. 
These influences can and do flow freely into the home, and Satan is very clever. He need not break down the door. You must be the guardians of virtue. A priesthood holder is virtuous. Virtuous behavior implies that you have pure thoughts and clean actions. Virtue is an attribute of godliness. It is akin to holiness. The young women values are Christ-like attributes, which include the value of virtue. We now call upon you to join with us in leading the world in a return to virtue. In order to do so, you must practice virtue and holiness by eliminating from your life anything that is evil and inconsistent with one who holds the holy priesthood of God. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion. So be cautious about what you view in entertainment media or print. Your personal virtue will model for your daughters and also your sons what true strength and moral courage are. By being a guardian of virtue in your own life, in your home, and in the lives of your children, you are showing your wife and daughters what true love really is. Your personal purity will give you power. You are your daughter's guardian in more than the legal sense. Be present in your daughter's life. Let her know your standards, your expectations, your hopes and dreams for her success and happiness. Interview her. Get to know her friends, and when the time comes, her boyfriends. Help her understand the importance of education. Help her understand that the principle of modesty is a protection. Help her choose music that invites the Spirit and is consistent with her divine identity. Be an active part of her life. And if, in her teenage years, she should not come home from a date on time, go get her. <laughs> she will resist and tell you that you've ruined her social life, but she will inwardly know that you love her and that you care enough to be her guardian. You are not ordinary men. Because of your valiance in the premortal realms, you qualify to be leaders and to possess priesthood power. You, there you exhibited exceeding faith and good works, and you are here now to do the same. Your priesthood sets you apart. Within a few weeks, our three sons will have given their baby daughters a name and a blessing. I hope this will be the first of many priesthood blessings they receive from their fathers, because in the world in which they will grow up, they will need those blessings. Your daughters will cherish the priesthood and determine in her heart that this is what she wants in her future home and family. Always remember that the rights of the priesthood of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven and can be controlled only upon the principles of righteousness. Fathers, you are your daughter's hero. My father was my hero. I used to wait on the steps of our home for him to arrive each night. He would pick me up and twirl me around, let me put my feet on his big shoes, and then he would dance me into the house. I love the challenge of trying to follow his every footstep. I still do. 
Did you know that your testimony has a powerful influence on your daughters? I knew my father had a testimony. I knew he loved the Lord, and because my father loved the Lord, I did too. I knew he cared about the widows because he took his vacation to paint the home of the widow next door. I thought that was the greatest vacation our family ever had because he taught me how to paint. You will bless the life of your daughter for years to come if you will look for ways to spend time with her and share your testimony with her. In the Book of Mormon, Abish was converted by her father's sharing with her his remarkable vision. For many years thereafter, she kept her testimony in her heart and lived righteously in a very wicked society. Then the time came when she could no longer be still, and she ran from house to house to share her testimony and the miracles she had witnessed in the king's court. The power of Abish's conversion and testimony was instrumental in changing an entire society. The people who heard her testify became a people who were converted unto the Lord and never did fall away, and their sons became the stripling warriors. As the hymn says, Rise up, O men of God. This is a call to you, the men who bear the holy priesthood of God. May it be said of you, as was said of Captain Moroni, he was a strong and a mighty man, a man of perfect understanding, a man who was firm in the faith of Christ. If all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Brethren, fathers, young men, be loyal to the royal within you. So how do you raise a girl? Love her mother. Lead your family to the temple. Be guardians of virtue and magnify your priesthood. Fathers, you have been entrusted with our Heavenly Father's royal daughters. They are virtuous and elect. It is my prayer that you will watch over them, strengthen them, model virtuous behavior, and teach them to follow in the Savior's every footstep. For He lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Many years ago, I was with my companion at the Missionary Training Center when I heard the voice of a child say, Grandma, are those real missionaries? I turned to see a young girl holding her grandmother's hand and pointing at me and my companion. I smiled, extended my hand, looked her square in the eye, and said, Hello, I'm Elder Richardson, and we are real missionaries. Her face beamed as she looked at me, thrilled that she was in the company of genuine missionaries. I walked away from that experience with renewed dedication. I wanted to be the type of missionary that the Savior, my family, and this young girl expected me to be. For the next two years, I worked hard to look like, think like, act like, and especially to teach like a real missionary. Upon returning home, it became increasingly apparent that even though I left my mission, my mission didn't leave me. In fact, even after all these years, I still feel that my mission was the best two years for my life. One unexpected carryover from my mission was that young girl's voice. 
Only now I was hearing in my mind, Grandma, is that a real priesthood holder? Grandma, is that a real husband or a real father? Or Grandma, is that a real member of the church? I have learned that a key to becoming real in every aspect of our lives is our ability to teach in a way that does not restrict learning. You see, real life requires real learning, which depends on real teaching. The responsibility to teach effectively is not limited to those who have formal callings as teachers. In fact, every family member, church leader, and church member, including the youth and children, have a responsibility to teach. While we are all teachers, we must fully realize that it is the Holy Ghost who is the real teacher and witness of all truth. Those who do not fully understand this either try to take over for the Holy Ghost and do everything for themselves, or politely invite the Spirit to be with them, but only in a supporting role, or believe that they are turning their teaching over to the Spirit when in truth they are actually just winging it. All parents, leaders, and teachers have the responsibility to teach by the Spirit. They should not teach in front of the Spirit or behind the Spirit, but by the Spirit, so the Spirit can teach the truth unrestrained. Moroni helps us understand how we can teach by the Spirit without replacing, diluting, or dismissing the Holy Ghost as the real teacher. Moroni said the saints conducted their experiences after the manner of the workings of the Spirit. This requires more than just having the Spirit with us. To conduct ourselves after the manner of the Holy Ghost means that we may need to change our way of teaching to emulate the way the Holy Ghost teaches. As we align our manner with the Holy Ghost's manner, then the Holy Ghost can teach and testify without restraint. This important alignment may be illustrated by the following example. Many years ago, my children and I hiked to the top of South Sister, a 10,358-foot mountain in Oregon. After several hours, we encountered a long 45-plus degree slope of tiny volcanic pebbles. With the summit in sight, we pressed on only to find that with every step, our feet would sink in the pebbles, causing us to slide backwards several inches. My 12-year-old son forged ahead as I stayed with my 8-year-old daughter. Fatigue and discouragement soon set in, and she was heartbroken, thinking that she might not join her brother at the top. My first impulse was to carry her. My spirit was willing, but sadly my flesh was weak. We sat down on the rocks, assessed our situation, and devised a new plan. I told her to put her hands in my back pants pockets, hold on tight, and most importantly, as soon as I lifted my foot to take a step, she should quickly put her foot in its place. She mirrored my every move and relied on that lift that came from hanging on to my pockets. After what seemed like an eternity, we made it to the top of the mountain. Her expression of triumph and satisfaction was priceless. And yes, she and her brother were, in my estimation, real hikers. My daughter's success was a result of her diligent effort and how well she hiked after the manner that I hiked. As she synchronized her movement with mine, we achieved a rhythm together, allowing me to utilize my full energy. Such is the case when we teach after the manner of the workings of the Spirit.
as we align the manner of our teaching to match the Holy Ghost's teachings, the Spirit strengthens us and at the same time is not constrained. With this in mind, please consider two fundamental workings of the Spirit worthy of our emulation. First, the Holy Ghost teaches individuals in a very personal way. This makes it possible for us to intimately know truth for ourselves. Because of our different needs, circumstances, and progression, the Holy Ghost teaches what we must know and do so we may become what we must be. Please note that while the Holy Ghost teaches the truth of all things, it does not teach all truth all at once. The Spirit teaches truth line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. Those who teach after the manner of the Spirit understand they teach people, not lessons. As such, they overcome the urge to cover everything in a manual or teach all they have learned on the subject and focus instead on those things that their family or class members need to know and do. Parents, leaders, and teachers who mirror how the Spirit teaches quickly learn that real teaching involves much more than just talking and telling. As a result, they intentionally pause to listen, carefully observe, and then discern what to do next. When they do this, the Holy Ghost is in a position to teach both learners and teachers what they should do and say. Second, the Holy Ghost teaches by inviting, prompting, encouraging, and inspiring us to act. Christ assured us that when we come, that we come to the truth, when we live the doctrine and act accordingly. The Spirit leads, guides, and shows us what to do. It will not, however, do for what do for us what only we can do for ourselves. You see, the Holy Ghost cannot learn for us feel for us, or act for us, because this would be contrary to the doctrine of agency. It can facilitate opportunities and invite us to learn, feel, and act. Those who teach after this manner of the Spirit help others by inviting, encouraging, and providing them opportunities to use their agency. Parents, leaders, and teachers realize they cannot feel for, learn for, or even repent for their family or congregation or class members. Rather than asking, what can I do for my children, class members, or others, they ask, how do I invite and help those around me to learn for themselves? Parents who mirror the workings of the Holy Ghost create homes where families learn to value rather than just learn about values. In like manner, rather than just talking about doctrines, teachers help learners understand and live gospel doctrines. The Holy Ghost is unrestrained as individuals exercise their agency appropriately. With the current conditions of the world, we desperately need real learning and teaching in our homes, meetings, and gospel classes. I know that your quest to improve may seem overwhelming at times. Please do not become discouraged with your progress. I think back on my experience hiking with my children. We agreed that every time we stopped to catch our breath, 
rather than focusing exclusively on how much farther we needed to go, we would immediately turn around and look down the mountain. We would take in the scenery and say to each other, look how far we've come. Then we would take a deep breath, quickly turn, face uphill, and start climbing again, one step at a time. Brothers and sisters, you can parent, lead, and teach after the manner of the workings of the Spirit. I know you can do this. I know you can do this. And lives will change. My life has been blessed by real teachers who have taught with the Spirit and especially by the Spirit. I invite you to align the manner of your teaching after the manner of the Holy Ghost in all you do. I testify that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that his gospel is restored. Because of this, we must be real parents, real leaders, real teachers, and real learners. I testify God will help you in your efforts in the sacred name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What think ye of Christ? With those words, Jesus confounded the Pharisees of his day. With those same words, I ask my fellow Latter-day Saints and other Christians what you really believe about Jesus Christ and what you are doing because of that belief. Most of my scriptural quotations will come from the Bible because it is familiar to most Christians. My interpretations will, of course, draw on what modern scripture, notably the Book of Mormon, teach us about the meaning of Bible scriptures so ambiguous that different Christians disagree on their meaning. I address believers, but others as well. As Elder Callister taught us this morning, some who call themselves Christians praise Jesus as a great teacher, but refrain from affirming his divinity. To address them, I have used the words of Jesus himself. We should all consider what he himself taught about who he was and what he was sent to earth to do. Jesus taught that he was the only begotten Son. Said he, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God the Father affirmed this in the culmination of the sacred experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. He declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Jesus also taught that his appearance was the same as his father's. To his apostles he said, If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, 
Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Later, the Apostle Paul described the Son as being the express image of God the Father's person. The Apostle John wrote that Jesus, whom he called the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Thus, under the plan of the Father, Jesus Christ was the creator of all things. During his ministry to his people in Palestine, Jesus taught that he was Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel. Later, as the risen Lord, he ministered to his people on the American continent. There he declared, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth. At a state conference many years ago, I met a woman who said she had been asked to come back to church after many years away, but could not think of any reason why she should. To encourage her, I said, when you consider all of the things the Savior has done for us, don't you have many reasons to come back to church to worship and serve Him? I was astonished at her reply. What's he done for me? For those who do not understand what our Savior has done for us, I will answer that question in his own words and with my own testimony. The Bible records Jesus' teaching, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Later in the New World, he declared, I am the light and the life of the world. He is the life of the world because He is our Creator and because through His resurrection we are all assured that we will live again. And the life He gives us is not merely mortal life. He taught, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus also taught, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. He also declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way and he is the light because his teachings light our path in mortal life and show us the way back to the Father. Always Jesus honored the Father and followed him. Even as a youth, he declared to his earthly parents, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? For I came down from heaven, he later taught, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And the Savior taught, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We return to the Father by doing his will. Jesus taught, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. 
He explained, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Who then will enter the kingdom of heaven? Not those who merely do wonderful works using the name of the Lord, Jesus taught, but only he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus showed us how to do this. Again and again he invited us to follow him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He gave priesthood power to his apostles and to others. To Peter, the senior apostle, he said, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Luke records that the Lord appointed seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Later, these seventy joyfully told Jesus, Even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. I am a witness of that priesthood power. At the close of his earthly ministry, Jesus taught his apostles, the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you, and he will guide you into all truth. He also guides us by his commandments. Thus he commanded the Nephites that they should have no more disputes concerning the points of doctrine. For, he said, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another. But this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. He also challenges us to focus on him, not on the things of the world. In his great sermon on the bread of life, Jesus explained the contrast between mortal and eternal nourishment. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, he said, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. The Savior taught that he was the bread of life, the source of eternal nourishment. Speaking of the mortal nourishment the world offered, including the manna Jehovah had sent to feed the children of Israel in the wilderness, Jesus taught that those who relied on this bread were now dead. In contrast, the nourishment he offered was the living bread, which came down from heaven and Jesus taught, 
If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Some of his disciples said this was an hard saying. And from that time, many of his followers went back and walked no more with him. Apparently, they did not accept his earlier teaching that they should seek first the kingdom of God. Even today, some who profess Christianity are more attracted to the things of the world, the things that sustain life on earth but give no nourishment toward eternal life. For some, his hard saying is still a reason not to follow Christ. The culmination of our Savior's mortal ministry was his resurrection and his atonement for the sins of the world. John the Baptist Baptist prophesied this when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Later, Jesus taught that the Son of Man came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. At the Last Supper, Jesus explained, according to the account in Matthew, that the wine he had blessed was my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Appearing to the Nephites, the risen Lord invited them to come forward to feel the wound in his side and the prints of the nails in his hands and his feet. He did this, he explained, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. And the account continues, the multitude fell down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. For this, the whole world will ultimately worship him. Jesus taught further precious truths about his atonement. The Book of Mormon, which elaborates the Savior's teachings and gives the best explanation of his mission, reports this teaching. My Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that they may be judged according to their works. And whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled. And if he endureth to the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. And no unclean thing can enter into the Father's kingdom. Therefore nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end. And so we understand that the Atonement of Jesus Christ gives us the opportunity to overcome the spiritual death that results from sin, and through making and keeping sacred covenants to have the blessings of eternal life. Jesus issued the challenge, What think ye of Christ? The Apostle Paul challenged the Corinthians to examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. All of us should answer these challenges for ourselves. Where is our ultimate loyalty? 
Are we like the Christians in Elder Maxwell's memorable description who have moved their residence to Zion but still try to keep a second residence in Babylon? There is no middle ground. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in his church and his gospel, and we should not use a visa to visit Babylon or act like one of its citizens. We should honor his name, keep his commandments, and seek not the things of this world, but seek first to build up the kingdom of God and to establish his righteousness. Jesus Christ is the only begotten and beloved Son of God. He is our Creator. He is the light of the world. He is our Savior from sin and death. This is the most important knowledge on earth, and you can know this for yourself as I know it for myself. The Holy Ghost, who testifies of the Father and the Son and leads us into truth, has revealed these truths to me, and he will reveal them to you. The way is desire and obedience. As to desire, Jesus taught, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. And knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And as to Obedience, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I testify of the truth of these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. One week after a recent assignment to create the first stake in Moscow, Russia, I attended a district conference in St. Petersburg. While speaking about my gratitude for early missionaries and local leaders who brought strength to the Church in Russia, I mentioned the name of Vyacheslav Yefimov. He was the first Russian convert to become a mission president. He and his wife did wonderfully well in that assignment. Not long after they had completed their mission, and much to our sorrow, President Yefimov suddenly passed away. He was only 52 years of age. While speaking of this pioneering couple, I felt impressed to ask the congregation if Sister Yefimov might be present. Far in the rear of the room, a woman stood. I invited her to come to the microphone. Yes, it was Sister Galina Yefimov. She spoke with conviction and bore a powerful testimony of the Lord, of his gospel, and of his restored church. She and her husband had been sealed in the holy temple. She said, They were united forever. They were still missionary companions she on this side of the veil and he on the other side. With tears of joy, she thanked God for sacred temple covenants. I wept too, 
with full realization that the everlasting unity exemplified by this faithful couple was the righteous result of making, keeping, and honoring sacred covenants. One of the most important concepts of revealed religion is that of a sacred covenant. In legal language, a covenant generally denotes an agreement between two or more parties. But in a religious context, a covenant is much more significant. It is a sacred promise with God. He fixes the terms. Each person may choose to accept those terms. If one accepts the terms of the covenant and obeys God's law, he or she receives the blessings associated with the covenant. We know that when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Through the ages, God has made covenants with His children. His covenants occur throughout the entire plan of salvation and are therefore part of the fullness of His gospel. For example, God promised to send a Savior for His children, asking in turn for their obedience to His law. In the Bible, we read of men and women in the old world who were identified as children of the covenant. What covenant? The covenant which God made with their fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. In the Book of Mormon, we read of people in the New World who were also identified as children of the covenant. The resurrected Lord so informed them, Behold, ye are the children of the prophets, and ye are of the house of Israel, and ye are of the covenant which the Father made with your fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. The Savior explained the importance of their identity as children of the covenant. He said, The Father, having raised me up unto you first, sent me to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities, and this because... Ye are the children of the covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham and later reaffirmed with Isaac and Jacob is of transcendent significance. It contains several promises, including Jesus the Christ would be born through Abraham's lineage. Abraham's posterity would be numerous entitled to an eternal increase, and also entitled to bear the priesthood. Abraham would become a father of many nations. Certain lands would be inherited by his posterity. All nations of the earth would be blessed by his seed, and that covenant would be everlasting even through a thousand generations. Some of these promises have been fulfilled. 
Others are still pending. I quote from an early Book of Mormon prophecy. Our father Lehi hath not spoken of our seed alone, but also of all the house of Israel, pointing to the covenant which should be fulfilled in the latter days. Which covenant the Lord made to our father Abraham. Isn't that amazing? Some 600 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, prophets knew that the Abrahamic covenant would be finally fulfilled only in the latter days. To facilitate that promise, the Lord appeared in these latter days to renew that Abrahamic covenant. To the prophet Joseph Smith, the master declared, Abraham received promises concerning his seed and of the fruit of his loins, from whose loins ye are, my servant Joseph. This promise is yours also, because ye are of Abraham. With this renewal, we have received, as did they of old, the holy priesthood and the everlasting gospel. We have the right to receive the fullness of the gospel, enjoy the blessings of the priesthood, and qualify for God's greatest blessing, that of eternal life. Some of us are the literal seed of Abraham. Others are gathered into his family by adoption. The Lord makes no distinction. Together, we receive these promised blessings if we seek the Lord and obey his commandments. But if we don't, we lose the blessings of the covenant. To assist us, his church provides patriarchal blessings to give each recipient a vision for his or her future, as well as a connection with the past, even a declaration of lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Brethren of the covenant have the right to qualify for the oath and covenant of the priesthood. If you are faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods and the magnifying of your calling, you are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of your bodies. That is not all. Men who worthily receive the priesthood receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who receive the Lord receive God the Father, and those who receive the Father receive all that he has. Incredible blessings flow from this oath and covenant to worthy men, women, and children in all the world. Ours is the responsibility to help fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Ours is the seed foreordained and prepared to bless all people of the world. That is why priesthood duty includes missionary work. After some 4,000 years of anticipation and preparation, this is the appointed day when the gospel is to, to be taken to the kindreds of the earth. This is the time of the promised gathering of Israel. And we get to participate. Isn't that exciting? The Lord is counting on us 
and our sons. And he's profoundly grateful for our daughters who worthily serve as missionaries in this great time of the gathering of Israel. The Book of Mormon is a tangible sign that the Lord has commenced to gather his children of covenant Israel. This book, written for our day, states as one of its purposes that, quote, ye may know that the covenant which the Father hath made with the children of Israel is already beginning to be fulfilled. For behold, the Lord will remember his covenant which he has made unto his people of the house of Israel, close quote. Indeed, the Lord has not forgotten. He has blessed us and others throughout the world with the Book of Mormon. One of its purposes is for the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. It helps us to make covenants with God. It invites us to remember him and to know his beloved son. It is another testament of Jesus Christ. Children of the covenant have the right to receive his doctrine and to know the plan of salvation. They claim it by making covenants of sacred significance. Brigham Young said, All Latter-day Saints enter the new and everlasting covenant when they enter this church. They enter the new and everlasting covenant to sustain the kingdom of God. They keep the covenant by obedience to his commandments. At baptism, we covenant to serve the Lord and keep his commandments. When we partake of the sacrament, we renew that covenant and declare our willingness to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. Thereby, we are adopted as his sons and daughters and are known as brothers and sisters. He is the father of our new life. Ultimately, in the holy temple, we may become joint heirs to the blessings of an eternal family, as once promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their posterity. Thus, celestial marriage is the covenant of exaltation. When we realize that we are children of the covenant, we know who we are and what God expects of us. His law is written in our hearts. He is our God, and we are his people. Committed children of the covenant remain steadfast, even in the midst of adversity. When that doctrine is deeply implanted in our hearts, even the sting of death is soothed and our spiritual stamina is strengthened. The greatest compliment that can be earned here in this life is to be known as a covenant keeper. The rewards for a covenant keeper will be realized both here and hereafter. Scripture declares that you should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, and if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven and dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. God lives. Jesus is the Christ, 
His church has been restored to bless all people. President Thomas S. Monson is his prophet today. And we, as faithful children of the covenant, will be blessed now and forever. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, we've heard the fine messages this morning, and I commend each who has participated. We're particularly delighted to have Elder Robert D. Hales with us once again and feeling improved. We love you, Bob. As I pondered what I'd like to say to you this morning, I felt impressed to share certain thoughts and feelings which I consider to be pertinent and timely. I pray that I may be guided in my remarks. I've lived on this earth for 84 years now. To give you a little perspective, I was born the same year Charles Lindbergh flew the first solo nonstop flight from New York to Paris in a single-engine, single-seat monoplane. Much has changed during the 84 years since then. Man has long since been to the moon and back. In fact, yesterday's science fiction has become today's reality. And that reality, thanks to the technology of our times, is changing so fast we can barely keep up with it, if we do at all. For those of us who remember dial telephones and manual typewriters, today's technology is more than merely amazing. Also evolving at a rapid rate has been the moral compass of society. Behaviors which once were considered inappropriate and immoral are now not only tolerated, but also viewed by ever so many as acceptable. I recently read in the Wall Street Journal an article by Jonathan Sachs, Britain's chief rabbi. Among among other things, he writes, and I quote, In virtually every Western society in the 1960s, there was a moral revolution, an abandonment of its entire traditional ethic of self-restraint. All you need, sang the Beatles, is love. (laughs) The Judeo-Christian moral code was jettisoned. In its place came the adage, do whatever works for you. The Ten Commandments were rewritten as the Ten Creative Suggestions. (laughs) Rabbi Sachs goes on to lament, quote, we've been spending our moral capital with the same reckless abandon that we've been spending our financial capital. There are large parts of the world where religion is a thing of the past, and there is no counter-voice to the culture of buy it, spend it, wear it, flaunt it, because you're worth it. (laughs) The message is that morality is passé. Conscience is for wimps, conscience. And the single overriding command is that thou shalt not be found out, close quote. (laughs) My brothers and sisters, 
This unfortunately describes much of the world around us. Do we wring our hands in despair and wonder how we'll ever survive in such a world? No. Indeed, we have in our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that morality is not passé, that our conscience is there to guide us, and that we are responsible for our actions. Although the world has changed, the laws of God remain constant. They have not changed. They will not change. The Ten Commandments are just that—commandments. They're not suggestions. They are every bit as requisite today as they were when God gave them to the children of Israel. If we but listen, we hear the echo of God's voice speaking to us here and now. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Our code of conduct is definitive. It is not negotiable. It is found not only in the Ten Commandments, but also in the Sermon on the Mount, given to us by the Savior when He walked upon the earth. It is found throughout His teachings. It is found in the words of modern revelation. Our Father in heaven is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Prophet Mormon tells us that God is unchangeable from all eternity to all eternity. In this world, where nearly everything seems to be changing, His constancy is something on which we can rely, an anchor to which we can hold fast and be safe, lest we be swept away into uncharted waters. It may appear to you at times that those out in the world are having much more fun than you are. Some of you may be, feel restricted by the code of conduct to which we in the Church adhere. My brothers and sisters, I declare to you, however, there is nothing which can bring more joy into our lives or more peace to our souls than the Spirit which can come to us as we follow the Savior, and keep the commandments. That Spirit cannot be present at the kinds of activities in which so much of the world participates. The Apostle Paul declared the truth. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The term natural man can refer to any of us if we allow ourselves to be so. We must be vigilant 
in a world which has moved so far from that which is spiritual. It is essential that we reject anything that does not conform to our standards, refusing in the process to surrender that which we desire most, eternal life in the kingdom of God. The storms will still beat at our doors from time to time, for they are an inescapable part of our existence in mortality. We, however, will be far better equipped to deal with them, to learn from them, and to overcome them if we have the gospel at our core and the love of the Savior in our hearts. The prophet Isaiah declared, The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever." As a means of being in the world, but not being of the world, it is necessary that we communicate with our Heavenly Father through prayer. He wants us to do so. He'll answer our prayers. The Savior admonished us, as recorded in 3 Nephi, chapter 18, to watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation, for Satan desireth to have you. Therefore ye must always pray unto the Father in my name, and whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. I gained my testimony of the power of prayer when I was about 12 years old. I had worked hard to earn some money and had managed to save $5. This was during the Great Depression when $5 was a substantial sum of money, especially for a boy of 12. I gave all my coins, which totaled $5, to my father, and he gave me in return a $5 bill. I know there was something specific I planned to purchase with the $5. Although all these years later, I can't recall what it was. (laughs) I just remember how important that money was to me. At the time, we did not own a washing machine, so my mother would send to the laundry each week our clothes which needed to be washed. After a couple of days, a load of what we call wet wash would be returned to us, and Mother would hang the items on our clothesline out back to dry. I had tucked in my $5 bill in the pocket of my jeans. As you could probably guess, my jeans were sent to the laundry with the money still in the pocket. When I realized what had happened, I was sick with worry. I knew that pockets were routinely checked at the laundry prior to washing. If my money were not discovered and taken during that process, I knew it was almost certain the money would be dislodged during washing and would be claimed by a laundry worker who would have no idea to whom the money should be returned 
even if he had the inclination to do so. The chances of getting back my $5 were extremely remote, a fact which my dear mother confirmed when I told her I'd left the money in my pocket. I paused. I wanted that money. I needed that money. I'd worked very hard to earn that money. I realized there was only one thing I could do. In my extremity, I turned to my Father in heaven and pleaded with him to keep my money safe in that pocket somehow until our wet wash came back. Two very long days later, when I knew it was about time for the delivery truck to bring our wash, I sat by the window waiting. As the truck pulled up to the curb, my heart was pounding. As soon as the wet clothes were in the house, I grabbed my jeans and ran to my bedroom. I reached into the pocket with trembling hands. When I didn't find anything, immediately I thought all was lost. And then my fingers touched that wet $5 bill. Oh, as I pulled it from the pocket, relief flooded over me. I offered a heartfelt prayer of gratitude to my Father in Heaven, for I knew that He'd answered my prayer. Since that time of long ago, I've had countless prayers answered. Not a day has gone by that I have not communicated with my Father in Heaven through prayer. It is a relationship I cherish, one I would literally be lost without. If you do not now have such a relationship with your Father in Heaven, I urge you to work toward that goal. As you do so, you will be entitled to His inspiration and guidance in your life. Necessities for each of us, if we are to survive spiritually, during our sojourn here on earth. Such inspiration and guidance are gifts He freely gives if we but seek them. What treasures they are! I am always humbled and grateful when my Heavenly Father communicates with me through His inspiration. I have learned to recognize it, to trust it, and to follow it. Time and time again, I've been the recipient of such inspiration. One rather dramatic experience took place in August of 1987 during the dedication of the Frankfurt Germany Temple. President Ezra Taft Benson had been with us for the first day or two of the dedication, but had returned home. So it became my opportunity to conduct the remaining sessions. On Saturday, we had a session for our Dutch members who were in the Frankfurt Temple District. I was well acquainted with one of our outstanding leaders from the Netherlands, Brother Peter Marek. Just prior to the session, I had the distinct impression that Brother Marek should be called upon to speak to his fellow Dutch members during the session, and that, in fact, he should be the first speaker. Not having seen him in the temple that morning, I passed a note to Elder Carlos E. Acey our area president, asking 
whether Peter Maurick was in attendance at the session. Just prior to standing up to begin the session, I received a note back from Elder Athey indicating that Brother Maurick was actually not in attendance, that he was involved elsewhere, that he was planning to attend the dedicatory session in the temple the following day with the servicemen stakes. As I stood at the pulpit to welcome the people and to outline the program, I received unmistakable inspiration once again that I was to announce Peter Marek as the first speaker. This was counter to all my instincts, for I just heard from Elder Acey that Brother Marek was definitely not in the temple. Trusting in the inspiration, however, I announced the choir presentation, the prayer, and then indicated that our first speaker would be Brother Peter Marek. As I returned to my seat, I glanced toward Elder Acey. I saw on his face a look of alarm. <laughs> he later told me that when I had announced Brother Marek as the first speaker, he couldn't believe his ears. He said he knew that I'd received his note, that I had indeed read it. <laughs> and he couldn't fathom why I would then announce Brother Marek as the speaker, knowing he wasn't anywhere in the temple. During the time all of this was taking place, Peter Marek was in a meeting at the area offices in Porthstrasse. As his meeting was going forward, he suddenly turned to Elder Thomas A. Hawks, who was then the regional representative, and asked, How fast can you get me to the temple? Elder Hawks, who was known to drive rather rapidly <laughs> in his small sports car, answered, I can have you there in 10 minutes. Well, why do you need to go to the temple? Brother Marek admitted he did not know why he needed to go to the temple, but that he knew he had to get there. <laughs> the two of them set out for the temple immediately. During the magnificent choir number, I glanced around thinking that at any moment I would see Peter Marek. I did not. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> Remarkably, however, I felt no alarm. I had a sweet, undeniable assurance that all would be well. Brother Marek entered the front door of the temple just as the opening prayer was concluding, still not knowing why he was there. <laughs> as he hurried down the hall, he saw my image on the monitor and heard me announce, We will now hear from Brother Peter Marek. To the astonishment of Elder Acey, Peter Marek immediately walked into the room and took his place at the podium. <laughs> Following the session, Brother Marek and I discussed that which had taken place prior to his opportunity to speak. I've pondered the inspiration which came that day, not only to me, but also to Peter Marek. That remarkable experience has provided an, an undeniable witness to me of the importance of being worthy to receive such inspiration and then trusting it.
and following it when it comes. I know without question that the Lord intended for those who were present at that session of the Frankfurt Temple dedication to hear the powerful, touching testimony of his servant, Brother Peter Marek. My beloved brothers and sisters, communication with our Father in Heaven, including our prayers to Him, His inspiration to us, is necessary in order for us to weather the storms and trials of life. The Lord invites us, draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me." Close quote. As we do so, we will feel His Spirit in our lives, providing us the desire and the courage to stand strong and firm in righteousness, to stand in holy places and be not moved as the winds of change swirl around us and the moral fiber of society continues to disintegrate before our very eyes. May we remember the Lord's precious promise to those who trust in Him. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Close quote. What a promise. May such be our blessing. I sincerely pray in the sacred name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Robert, on behalf of all of us, we extend our deepest love and are so grateful you're here this morning. Well, <clears throat> since last April's General Conference, my mind has been repeatedly focused on the subject of the importance of a name. In these past few months, several great-grandchildren have come into our family. Although they seem to come faster than I can keep up with, each child is welcome addition to our family. Each has received a special name chosen by their parents, a name to be known by throughout their lifetime, distinguishing him or her from anyone else. This is true in every family, and it is also true among the religions of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ knew how important it was to clearly name His Church in these latter days. In the 115th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, he himself named the Church. For thus shall my Church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And King Benjamin taught his people in the Book of Mormon times, I would that ye should take upon you the name of Christ. All that you have entered into the covenant with God, that ye should be obedient unto the end of your lives. And I would that you should remember also that this is the name that I said that I should give unto you that never should be blotted out except 
through transgression. Therefore take heed that ye do not transgress, that the name be not blotted out of your hearts. We take the name of Christ upon us in the waters of baptism. We renew the effect of that baptism each week as we partake of the sacrament, signifying our willingness to take His name upon us and promising always to remember Him. Do we realize how blessed we are to take upon us the name of God's beloved, only begotten Son? Do we understand how significant that is? The Savior's name is the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. As you'll remember, President Boyd K. Packer discussed the importance of the name of the Church in last April's General Conference. He explained that, obedient to Revelation, we call ourselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rather than the Mormon Church. Because the full name of the Church is so important, I echo the revelations from the scriptures, the First Presidency's instructions in letters of 1982 and 2001, and the words of other apostles who have encouraged the members of the Church to uphold and teach the world that the Church is known by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the name by which the Lord will call us at the last day. It is the name by which His Church will be distinguished from all others. I've thought a lot about why the Savior gave the nine-word name to His restored Church. It may seem long, but if we think of it as a descriptive overview of what the Church is, it suddenly becomes wonderfully brief, candid, and straightforward. How could any description be more direct and clear and yet expressed in such few words? Every word is a clarifying and indispensable. The word the indicates the unique position of the restored Church among the religions of the world. The words Church of Jesus Christ declare that it is His Church. In the Book of Mormon, Jesus taught, How be it my church, save it be called in my name. Or if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, like Mormon, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church, if it so be that they are built upon my gospel." of Latter-day explains that it is the same Church as the Church that Jesus established during His mortal ministry, but restored in these latter days. We know there was a falling away or an apostasy necessitating the restoration of His true and complete Church in our time. Saints means that its members follow Him and strive to do His will, keep His commandments, and prepare once again to live with his with him and our heavenly father in in the future saint simply refers to those who seek to make their lives holy by covenanting to covenanting to follow Christ the name the savior has given to his church tells us exactly who we are 
and what we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. He atoned for all who would repent of their sins, and he broke the bands of death and provided the resurrection from the dead. We follow Jesus Christ. And as King Benjamin said to his people, so I reaffirm to all of us today, ye should remember to retain his name written always in your heart. We are asked to stand as witnesses of him at all times and in all things and in all places. This means that we must be willing to let others know who we follow and to whose church we belong, the Church of Jesus Christ. We certainly want to do this in the spirit of love and testimony. We want to follow the Savior by simply and clearly yet humbly declaring that we are members of His Church. We follow Him by being Latter-day Saints, Latter-day Disciples. People and organizations often are given nicknames by others. A nickname may be a shortened form of a name, or it may be derived from an event or some physical or other characteristic. While nicknames do not have the same status or significance as the actual names, they can be properly used. The Lord's Church in both ancient and modern times has had nicknames. The saints in the New Testament times were called Christians because they professed to believe in Jesus Christ. That name, first used derogatorily by their detractors, is now a name of distinction, and we are honored to be called a Christian Church. Our members have been called Mormons because we believe in the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Others may try to use the word Mormon more broadly to include and refer to those who have left the Church and formed various splinter groups. Such use only such use only leads to confusion. We are grateful for the efforts of the media to refrain from using the word Mormon in a way that may cause the public to confuse the Church with polygamists or other fundamentalist groups. Let me state clearly that no polygamous group, including those calling themselves fundamentalist Mormons or other derivatives of our name, have any affiliation whatsoever with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. While Mormon is not the full and correct name of the Church, and even though it was originally given by our detractors during our early years of persecution, it has become an acceptable nickname when applied to members rather than to the, the institution. We do not need to stop using the name Mormon when appropriate, but we should continue to give emphasis to the full and correct name of the Church itself. In other words, we should avoid and discourage the term Mormon Church. Through the years as I have filled assignments around the world, I have been asked many times if I belong to the Mormon Church. My response has been, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. Because we believe in the Book of Mormon, 
which is named after an ancient American prophet leader and is another testament of Jesus Christ, we are sometimes called Mormons. In every instance, this response has been well received and in fact has opened up opportunities for me to explain the restoration of the fullness of the gospel in these latter days. Brothers and sisters, just think what an impact we can have by simply responding by using the full name of the Church as the Lord has declared we should do. And if you cannot immediately use the full name, at least I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ. And then later explain of Latter-day Saints. Some may ask about the Internet sites such as Mormon.org as well as various Church-initiated media campaigns. As Iris said, referring collectively to members as Mormons is sometimes appropriate. As a practical matter, those outside of our faith come looking for us, searching for that term. But once you open Mormon.org, the proper name of the Church is explained on the home page, and it appears on each additional page on the site. It is impractical to expect people to type the full name of the Church when seeking to find us or when logging on to our website. While these practicalities may continue, they should not keep members from using the full name of the Church whenever possible. Let us develop the habit within our families and our Church activities and our daily interactions of making it clear that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the name by which the Lord Himself has directed that we be known. A recent opinion poll indicated that far too many people still do not understand correctly that Mormon refers to members of our Church, and a majority of the people are still not sure that Mormons are Christians. Even when they read of our Helping Hands work throughout the world in the aftermath of hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, and famines, they do not associate our humanitarian efforts with us as a Christian organization. Surely it would be easier for them to understand that we believe in and follow the Savior if we refer to ourselves as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this way, those who hear the name Mormon will come to associate that word with our revealed name and with the people who follow Jesus Christ. As the First Presidency asked in their letter of February 23, 2001, the use of the revealed name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is increasingly important in our responsibility to proclaim the name of the Savior throughout the world. Accordingly, we ask that when we refer to the Church, we use its full name wherever possible." Close quote. Back in 1948, at an October General Conference, President George Albert Smith said, Brethren and sisters, when you go away from here, you may be associating with various denominations of the world. But remember 
that there is only one Church in all the world that by divine command bears the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, may we also remember this as we leave conference today. Let our testimonies of Him be heard and our love for Him always be in our hearts. I humbly pray in His name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.